Hey, welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Mark Gagne. I'm here with Trevor Clifford. How are you feeling today, Trevor? Uh, I feel like a lost toy. How do you feel? I feel like I rolled my brain's ankle. I'm hobbling right now mentally. Whoa. Trying to walk it off. <laughs> walk it off, man. <laughs> I went for, I went, uh... I was having like a weird day too, where I just like felt like shit yesterday. So I went for like this massive hike, me and a few friends. We went on like a, I think we climbed like 2000 feet. Shit. It's always good. Fresh just air. Came home and zonked the fuck out. Nice. That's a good combo. Yeah. Just burned out an entire day with like, fuck this. <laughs> yeah. I need one of those days soon. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Go hike up. So anyways, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I have a mountain nearby. Um, so this week, uh, instead of game, I was thinking we could just maybe talk about a random topic or talk about the intersection of music and books. And, right. you know, that's all I really said to you in preparation. Wanted to keep it vague. Right. So we have the vague, we have the vague topic of each bringing a few things. Basically, just what it, what would we bring up if we said books and music? Yeah, this, you know, first thoughts. First thoughts. Uh, do you want to start out? Here. Uh, sure. You know, I wonder first, if we'll have any they... similar ones, but yeah, let, let's see. The the first thing that came to my mind was kind of some like long held beef I've had, and okay. you know, I I just wanted to address um, the Led Zeppelin song "Ramble On," <laughs> and it's. It's incredibly, incredibly loose connection to Lord of the Rings. Right. I actually thought of, I didn't bring this as one of my topics, but I did think about this. I was like, isn't there that Led Zeppelin song that like is supposed to be about Lord of the Rings, but they got everything wrong, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's you know, it's a good song. It's just got some weird inaccuracies that, you know, always bug me. And I've got, I've got all the lyrics here. Like, so the chorus is like, okay, uh, Ramble on, and now is the time. The time is now. Sing my song. I'm going round the world. I got to find my girl. On my way. I've been this way 10 years of the day. Ramble on. Got to find the queen of all my dreams. And what what girl is he talking about? Yeah, like, so is the... Is the is this song supposed to be about Lord of the Rings? Like, are there other lyrics that have accurate well, things? the second part... Yeah, the second part is is, is like is what makes it about Lord of the Rings. Like, this, so far in the song, there's nothing about it. Like, Right, that wouldn't be related to Lord of the Rings be. at all. Unless, unless, yeah, yeah. unless maybe it was the perspective of, like, Aragorn, and, like, he's trying to, like, reunite with Arwen, but still, that doesn't really make that much sense. But. I guess, like, that. that's where you could start. But <laughs> my theory is just that, you know, Paige or Plant or whoever, or I didn't look up which of them wrote the lyrics, but they were just, you know, so horny they had to add their own like. Yeah, everything story. has to be about a girl <laughs> in some way. With, yeah. with rock So and the roll. part. Yeah, like near uh, two thirds of the way through the song, here, here's the ones that, you know, make that connection. Twas in the darkest depths of Mordor, I met a girl so fair. But Gollum and the evil one crept up and slipped away with her. So is like, that supposed to be about, about the ring? <laughs> that's what I kind of think, but even then it doesn't really make sense. No, yeah, it doesn't. Because <laughs> he didn't go to Mordor to like find the ring and then Gollum like went away with it. I, I don't know. That that just, I'm not sure. And then that that's it, you know. I think maybe whoever wrote these lyrics for the Zeppelin song probably like read half of Fellowship of the Ring when they were like, you know, stoned or something, and then they tried to like comment on it from like the like uh, the societal phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and like didn't know what and it was then, actually about. At the end, it's I can't find my bluebird. I listen to my bluebird sing. Can't find my bluebird. So I don't yeah, know. That's not what? even like. I'm well, what's sure. what's funny about it's like kind of reminding me. I once saw like. Um, I think it was Paul McCartney did an interview with Mark Maron on his podcast, What the Fuck? But, like, it was kind of interesting to hear the inspiration behind some, like, Beatles songs. Like, he was saying how, you know, it wasn't always, like, a full investigation into what they were talking about. Like, Helter Skelter was just, like, he saw, like, something on the news where it was, like, the Rolling Stones had come out with, like, a brutal song. And then he was like, we're going to do that. But, like, no, <laughs> no kind of, like, research <laughs> 
Yeah. And if you think about it at that time, it's not like, you know, whoever wrote for Zeppelin could have like Googled anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they just had to pick up the book. But yeah. I don't know, like, or just talk to anyone. But there there are more, there are better Lord of the Rings related songs. Like a couple I could think of um, are from like progressive rock bands, mm-hmm. you know, so they're nerds. So you can trust yeah. that they've read a bunch of, <laughs> yeah, uh, a bunch of Tolkien, a bunch of fantasy or whatever. Like, um, so like lyrically, there's a song by Rush called Rivendell. And that's a pretty good song. It's, it's kind of calm and whatever, but lyrically, like, you know, it's just about staying in Rivendell, not growing old. So, you know, it, it mm-hmm. fits as like an accurate thing or whatever. Well, it is part of the Rush legend that Neil Peart writes all the lyrics. So it definitely, he was definitely a huge like sci-fi and fantasy nerd. Yeah. And then uh, as far as musically, there's a song called Nimrodel, the procession by the, this another prog rock band, uh, Camel. Mm-hmm. And that's, there's a line about Gandalf in it or whatever, but I don't know. Um, I don't know how accurate that one is either but like i don't know the instrumental section at the end rips so well it's a good song yeah i'll throw it on twitter later nice all right that's my first one what do you got um i'm not going in any particular order here but something something we've talked about the on the podcast like really briefly before but i did like a little bit more examination of it like the very first thing that comes to mind when you say like books and music for me was um, the Metallica song one is inspired by Johnny got his gun. So yeah, the, the novel Johnny got his gun is about a guy who stepped on a landmine and it's just all the narrative from his hospital bed of he's, he has no arms, no legs and basically no face, but he's still alive and doesn't really know he kind of doesn't know what's going on until like halfway through the book. He like figures out like, oh, I'm like a crip, like an invalid who is like in this hospital bed. Yeah. Um, but the song one by Metallica is inspired by it. And actually through my research for this, just kind of like, cause I knew that from when I was like a kid listening to Metallica, but I also found, um, uh, I learned that, this the this song is the first um music video that was made for metallica so it was their first music video and there's a 1971 film for johnny got his gun that they like put clips into the music video yep and as a result of that like in the early days of you know music videos basically the filmmakers were like you have to, you know, pay us like the rights to have these clips in the video. So Metallica, the band actually just bought the rights to the whole film. (laughs) (laughs) So like, rather than like paying for individual clips, they were like, we're just going to buy like this film, like the rights to it. (laughs) I didn't know that part. I've seen the video and I have like the DVD, whatever, when I was high school, I bought like the Metallica, the videos DVD, and that is the first one. So yeah, about that part, but that they had to buy the, the film. That's pretty great. Yeah. And then I also, there's another link that I'll put out on Twitter as well, which is, um, there's a good interview from New Zealand in 1989 where it's just Lars, <laughs> just Lars, the drummer in New Zealand, giving a TV interview where he talks about, um, I don't think that they, I think probably for like rights reasons or something, they don't directly say this song is about Johnny got his gun, but he says, you know, like it's a similar situation, you know, like inspired by, I don't know why they wouldn't just directly say it, but yeah. Um, so he references that film in the interview, which is, it's pretty, <laughs> it's a pretty funny interview. Cause it's like, it's sort of tacky. Like the style of the woman interviewing him is like very, late 80s early 90s and they're just sitting on like a red couch (laughs) (laughs) actually i have a a story based on that so 2012 um i decided to go see metallica with a few friends Mm -hmm. because it was like a bucket list thing i'm like you know i missed out on all the good years or whatever but i need to just see them once um so i went to their like big festival whatever in new jersey and uh, got sunburnt to hell the first day. So like Damn. the second day just wanted to like get out of the sun. And there was a, uh, there was a movie, there was like a tent or whatever set up where you could go and uh, wait in line and like watch a movie that Lars had acted in that was oh. actually, 
It's a movie. It was um, it's like an HBO movie or something. It's got it's Clive Owen and Nicole Kidman, and Clive Owen is like playing uh, as uh, Ernest Hemingway, and Whoa. it's like it's about his life and stuff. And, and Lars is like randomly was, in it. All right, but yeah, yeah, Lars has like a <laughs> funny like I don't know kind of <laughs> awkward part in it or whatever. But and then he like we watched the movie and then he like did like a Q and A and stuff. Uh, but yeah, that's another like literary connection. Sweet. What's your next one? All right. And I got another nerd pick here, but, uh, I wanted to bring up the connection with, um, Siddhartha by Mm. Herman Hess and the album close to the edge by yes from 1972. Yeah. I knew that these were connected, but I forgot. Yeah. So the theme and the lyrics specifically of the title track, I thought it was the whole album, but it's just the, I think it's just the title track, but it's you know it's like a twenty minute song or something. It's based on the book you know in which a man experiences an inner awakening through the forces of, of nature and other things. So like lyrically, it's a lot of metaphors about major themes within the book, like self discovery and enlightenment and all that. And uh, so singer John Anderson he stated that he was you know thinking about the book, dreaming about quote. Uh, passing on from this world to another yet feeling so fantastic about it that death never frightened me ever since um hmm. and yeah that's just a great album with it is a good album and yeah i i i've listened to close to the edge i've only read uh siddhartha once but obviously i've listened to close to the edge many times and i think i kind of started to lose the association with siddhartha but it's a good reminder that it definitely is inspired by it yeah, it's got the hook is like all about the river that like the the character you know waits by for for years and years. Yeah, cool. That's um, a quick hit. What do you got? My next one um, is probably the first in depth mention of Proust that I'll have on our podcast, but definitely not the last. Uh, Mark knows that I have been sort of very trepidatious about like even talking about Proust on the podcast because over the past few years he like meant so much to me that it's like it's almost crazy like he becomes so personal when you're reading him that it's like oh like can I like talk about it out loud or like you know like (laughs) what should I do but uh there is an interesting piece of so I read um one of uh Proust's biographies by Benjamin Taylor it's it's one of the most recent ones just called Proust which is um it's a really good read and some of the reviews of it will tell will say like it's it's a good introduction for like um younger like more like millennial readers because it's kind of like it's written in a simpler style than some of his other biographies which are more like exhaustive like every detail sort of like you know really deep whereas this one is like a 200 page like modern biography but yeah. some of the cool stuff that uh, I I read that book and then as I'm, you know, reading um, In Search of Lost Time, which is Proust's main series of books, um, a theme kind of jumped forward that I thought was kind of interesting. So in the biography, Benjamin Taylor talks about how Proust was um, sometimes like semi-obsessed with passages of like certain songs, but he also seems to be like an early person of like being like he he would definitely utilize the um the repeat button like on an ipod like listening to a song over and over because <laughs> he was like obsessed and he even had like some he had like some romances with um some like homosexual romances with other uh composers and stuff like that i think one is like a very prominent one that comes into the books later but he is like reported as like having had his um boyfriend like play like the same thing on the piano like a hundred times like over and over and stuff like that (laughs) um so then that is also something that i actually noticed because i read that in his biography i noticed it in some of his writing and uh, i actually found a a thing that I highlighted in the, in one of his books, which I'll just read up to this point. Proust can be really confusing, especially read out loud. Like I've listened to him on audiobook, and it's much better to just read because some of the sentences are really complex, but this one is okay. Um, so real uh, quick though. So he invented, he, he maybe invented piano loops. 
Maybe. That's like maybe. a Wu-Tang thing. Well, he was like <laughs> obsessed with hearing the same phrase over and over. And there's like, yeah, there was like towards the end of his life, they started to have like radio broadcasts of opera that he like custom like wired into his apartment and stuff like that. And like he was just really into like listening to a record over and over and stuff like that. Um, nice. So here's a paragraph. from This is from book one of In Search of Lost Time, Swan's Way. Uh, But it was in vain that I lingered before the hawthorns to breathe in, to marshal before my mind, which knew not what to make of it, to lose in order to rediscover their invisible and unchanging odor, to absorb myself in the rhythm which disposed their flowers here and there with the lightheartedness of youth, and at intervals as unexpected as certain intervals of music, they offered me an indefinite continuation of the same charm, in an inexhaustible profusion, but without letting me delve into any into it any more deeply like those melodies which one can play over a hundred times in succession without coming any nearer to their secret so in that he's talking about the hawthorns and flowers and stuff like that but that that little reference i highlighted because i was like oh like that's from his biography like he was obsessed with um repeating things and also uh one thing that i'll give a shout out to is there's like there's a playlist that I follow on Spotify um called the Ventula the Ventuil Sonata Proust influences and basically there's a giant sonata that he incorporates throughout all of Remembrance of Things Past but this person Andreas Widoff on Spotify made a playlist of what could have potentially been Proust influences which a lot of people believe was Caesar Frank so um, there's like a whole Spotify playlist. It's about an hour long or more that I listen to all the time. That is supposedly some of the um, sonatas and stuff that has inspired Proust. So definitely go check that out on Spotify and I can link it in the Twitter as well. Interesting. Yeah. So my last one here. Yeah, they only had three. Um so I kind of I like when instrumental songs are you know named after a reference books or something mm-hmm. because then you've kind of got then the artist has the challenge of trying to like capture the mood of the right. book without words and just the feeling and you know or sometimes there's like a story to it and like the first one that came to my head was you know you know the song Frankenstein by Edgar Winter the Edgar I, Winter group I do not it's like the dun 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 okay yep you you've heard it yeah but yeah. <laughs> I guess uh, I looked into that song and I guess, you know, the name, the name came from the drummer. Um, I think he called it that, but originally it was like a much longer jam, but then, you know, they had to chop it up, splice the pieces together to make it whole, much like uh, you know, the character in the book. Yeah. So, uh, and I think they also reinforced it by saying, you know, it has a monster like lumbering beat to it. <laughs> so that's kind of interesting. Like, uh, I think there's a lot of songs like that and like, um, I think uh, when you did Rendezvous with Rama, I was trying to think of who I because I knew there was a song called Cylindrical Sea, and it was oh. I finally remembered after the fact it was uh, that's a song by Animals as Leaders. Oh, nice! That's awesome. So I might have to throw that up on on Twitter. Yeah, cylindr- um, Yeah, that's definitely a reference to Rama. Isn't um, um, I was also thinking isn't Frankenstein the name of Eddie Van Halen's guitar? You know, his famous, I think Maybe. that's the name of his guitar. Is it? Yeah. Uh, I'm okay. pretty sure. The Frankenstein guitar. Um, I have two more like really quick hits. Um, my third one would be something I've mentioned on the podcast before, but it's worth a second mention is there's like a really diverse web, uh, pardon the pun, of online links and blogs and Spotify playlists to do with Murakami. Um, basically because he, he specifically references music so much that I've since found that not only on YouTube, but also on Spotify, there are whole playlists of like every song mentioned in, you know, Norwegian wood or like every song mentioned in South of the border, West of the sun. So, um, definitely go check that out as you're reading Murakami. And another thing that's really awesome about him is he gets really specific with jazz clubs. Like he owned, I mean, jazz recordings, cause he owned, uh, he supposedly owned like a jazz club 
in Japan yeah. uh, before he was a novelist. So it's really cool. Like on YouTube, you'll find a lot of comments because in some of his books, he'll be like the blah, blah, blah recording with, you know, like Benny Goodman solo, like with this person playing bass. And you're like, okay. And then if you look for that, then all the YouTube comments are like Murakami, Murakami. Um, <laughs> Which is really cool because, um, you know, it just fits. He's definitely, you know, a good person for referencing music. And then my last one, which really quickly, I, this book just like kind of leapt into my mind when you talked about books plus music. And this is a book that I haven't read in a really long time. But uh, there's, a, there's a pretty cool book called um, Fat Kid Rules the World by uh, K.L. Going. And it is um, a novel published in 2003. I'm familiar with that. Yeah, it's like totally random. Like, I think it was one of the, it was like a book that I just read it because of the title and I picked it up in the library, like in high school or something. And uh, it's just a nice little book. Like if anyone wants to check it out or it, it sounds like something they'd be into, it's called Fat Kid Rules the World. And the whole story starts when the main character, Troy Billings, is about to jump in front of a train. Like he's like a teenager who's just like, it starts right out with him being like, I think I'm about to jump in front of this like subway car. And then uh, he kind of like befriends um, someone who's like way cooler than him, his friend, Kurt. Um who was like a legend in their like high school for like playing guitar and they start a band together. And it's like, it's sort of like a book about like the restorative power of music and friends and stuff. But it's also just a good book because it references a lot of stuff like Nirvana and like just, you know, how you can pretty much tell that this person, this author, KL Going, um, you know, was probably saved by music at, at some point. And it's like a nice young adult novel that's just cool. Nice. Yeah. So, yeah, music and books. Uh, let us know what you think. <laughs> What's the first thing that comes to uh, <laughs> your head? Yeah. Listeners. <laughs> uh, so I think I'm going first this week, right? Yes. Odd numbers. Yes. Episode 17, you're going first. All right, let's go. Um so today, I want to discuss the existential dread that's caused by starting a new job or a new career. Okay. Or, you know, any yeah, new environment, anything like that. And, you know, the humor that accompanies it somehow, or hopefully does, or, you know, at least the humor that gets you through it, mm -hmm. like through those experiences. You know, tell me if this, does this internal monologue sound familiar? Like shit how am i supposed to get this done you know why why do i agree to to do that i don't i don't fucking know anything like i can't do this yeah for sure that's got to be familiar <laughs> uh so you know i assume you know about imposter syndrome you know um you know when you're like worried you don't belong or don't deserve to be where you are you're in over your head kind of thing right okay i didn't know it was called imposter syndrome but it's a good good term yeah i don't know i don't know when the the uh term was coined but if you been hearing it a lot more like in the last few years i guess uh, online and stuff i think we've all kind of felt it on some level before you know in any kind of pursuit not just work related and mm -hmm. um also because everyone hates on everything it's kind of weird i've seen some cynical people say it's like a backhanded compliment that you give yourself like a humble brag like oh you don't know how hard it is to be successful but not feel like you're successful yeah uh, <laughs> but i mean i think it's an incredibly natural thing unless you're a robot or whatever it's just like a another sub level of stress never ends anyway, never ends there's been yeah. a lot of talk of like you know successful comedians and celebrities and it's like that there's no kind of like the bar never moves it's just you get to it and then there's another one yeah but um so yeah i think a lot of people can relate to that the fear the dread of constantly thinking I'm going back to the job thing, you know, constantly thinking you might lose your job, that sort of, those sort of thoughts mm -hmm. and how those thoughts can keep you from paying your full attention. You know, it's, it's in front of your mind and you know, it's the juggling act of knowing who you need to impress or who you need to act, um, I guess, perfect in front of however far away that is from your own true character. And, uh, and so that, so that reminded me of the old, uh, Dave Chappelle bit about mimicking social cues and, uh, that's my problem. I can't, I can't handle pressure. Sometimes <laughs> pressure make me talk different. 
I'm serious. You ever have like that social pressure? You ever talk to somebody who's fake and they make you fake? Like, that kind of like, hey, how you doing? You're like, fine, how are you? And you're like, I don't even talk like that. I get sick of that shit. <laughs> Yeah, and that, that's very true. That happens a lot, especially, you know, you're starting a new job or something like you might mimic some social cues or oh, just yeah. the stress kind of gets to you and makes you it, it, it does that sort of thing. But um, uh, this is from Dave Chappelle, uh, Killing Him Softly. Uh, so anyways, today I've got a story about a neurotic English chap who he's a first year lecturer in medieval history at uh, an English university. And he's worried about losing his job, you know, a job, a job that he's not really that passionate about in the first place. So it's not, maybe not entirely imposter syndrome, but you know, his job is better than the alternatives. And that's another, another part of it. But, and because of this, because of all this stress and all that, he's, you know, he's desperate for the approval of the head of his department, Professor Welch. And also because of this, you know, he drinks too much, he smokes too much pressure gets to him. He revels in, in small pranks on his colleagues. He endures incredibly boring social engagements. And, you know, he suppresses his rage and expels it in funny faces that he makes when no one's looking, just because mm. you kind of need some sort of release. So the, the book I have this week is called Lucky Jim by Kingsley Amos. I don't know if it's Amos or Ami. It's A-M-I-S. Okay. Never it's heard of it. From 1954. It's from 1954. It's his first novel. I know you're a fan of, of debuts. Mm-hmm. So in it, uh, Lucky Jim, it's uh, James, Dick, James Dixon, who has made some really terrible first impressions in his first year as a lecturer at this college. And you know, his second, third, fourth, and so on impressions are, are not much better. <laughs> He's got some... He's got some Ignatius J. Riley in him. He's got some, maybe some Mr. Bean in him. Uh, <laughs> nice. You know, his path is always a comedy of errors, you know, both physical and inside his head. Uh, you don't exactly like him as a character. You know, he's got some corrupt morals. He's kind of, he's lazy. He doesn't really like where his stand in life. His head's not always in the right place, but, you know, these flaws do tend to make him extremely relatable. You know, it's it's maybe not so much an anti-hero, but you know what I mean? Like, someone who's very flawed and that makes him relatable. So, so he has this uncertain relationship with Professor Welch, who he, you know, has to suck up to. Uh, he's also got an uncertain on-again, off-again relationship with a fellow lecturer, uh, Margaret. Is this then, like so? It's college. It's collegiate level. So is everything about like tenure and stuff like that? Uh sort of. He's just trying to, you know, he's just trying to stay on for another year, another semester. Like he's okay. he's just starting out at the job. Okay. But anyway, so like, um, he's got he's got all this going on, and then Welch's son, the guy he's trying to suck up to, his son arrives on the scene with his very pretty girlfriend, and then things get really complicated. And Dixon, Jim Dixon, stays drunk throughout, you know, messing up in a bunch of different ways. And that's a really basic plot summary, but not much actually happens in this book. So I, I think that's the farthest I'll actually go. But I have to say, like, it's per, this book is pretty damn funny. Um, like the the humor is embedded in the in the detail of the writing. Like I'm, I'm just gonna say Amos, even if I'm wrong. Amos, he's really <laughs> you got you really got to press on. <laughs> yeah, I should have looked it up. Whatever. Don't worry, no my, my novel this week <laughs> is gonna be the same thing. So <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> so um, Amos Kingsley Amos, he's really talented at describing like the visceral suffering of boredom and how far it can throw you off from the way you would normally think. And you know, there's also like, you know, the humor, the style of humor where like. You're elevating some sort of small social faux pas to the level of murder or something or beyond. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that sort of stuff can be really funny. Like uh, the you know the social faux pas, like uh, like curb your enthusiasm level kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So Dixon he goes to great lengths to avoid confrontation. Always seems to make things worse. It's a really good satire on 
highbrow academic culture. And uh, I guess it kind of established the subgenre of campus novels that take place in like this sort of setting. Right. Um, I just said like not a lot happens, but that's a good thing in this case. There's really no parts that drag. It's a pretty quick read. Um, I want to read a really great section here. Uh, all, all the reviews I've seen in this book have also pointed this out because it's just such a well-described uh, scene. It's where Jim is drunk. He's trying to fall asleep. At, at the end of one chapter, he's trying to fall asleep. And then the beginning of the next chapter is the description of his hangover. Okay. So there's like, you know, some comedic timing baked in there. So let me just read this part. He began getting into bed. His four surviving cigarettes, had he really smoked 12 that evening, lay in their packet on a polished table at the bed head, accompanied by matches, the Bakelite mug of water, and an ashtray from the mantelpiece. A temporary inability to raise his second foot onto the bed let him know what had been the secondary effect of drinking all that. It had made him drunk. This became a primary effect when he lay in bed. On the fluttering mantelpiece was a small china effigy, the representation in a squatting position of a Buddha figure. Had Welch put it there as a silent sermon to him on the merits of the contemplative life? If so, the message had come too late. He reached up and turned off the light by the hanging switch above his head. The room began to rise upwards from the right-hand bottom corner of the bed, and yet seemed to keep in the same position. He threw back the covers and sat on the edge of the bed, his legs hanging. The room composed itself to rest. After a few mo moments, he swung his legs back and lay down. The room lifted. He put his feet to the floor. The room stayed still. He put his legs on the bed but didn't lie down. The room moved. He sat on the edge of the bed. Nothing. He put one leg up on the bed. Something. In fact, a great deal. He was evidently in a highly critical condition. Swearing hoarsely, he heaped up the pillows, half lay, half sat against them, and dangled his legs half over the edge of the bed. In this position, he was able to lower himself gingerly into sleep. So I believe he's describing the spins. <laughs> yeah, um, for sure. All right, beginning of the next chapter. Dixon was alive again. Consciousness was upon him before he could get out of the way. Not for him, the slow, gracious wandering from the halls of sleep, but a summary, forcible ejection. He lay sprawled, too wicked to move, spewed up like a broken spider crab on the tarry shingle of the morning. The light did him harm, but not as much as looking at things did. He resolved, having done it once, never to move his eyeballs again. <laughs> a dusty thudding in his head made the scene before him beat like a pulse. His mouth had been used as a latrine by some small creature of the night, and then as its mausoleum. During the night, too, He'd somehow been on a cross-country run and then been expertly beaten up by secret police. He felt bad. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> nice. It's a, a pretty great scene right there. And he's constantly, yeah, he's, you know, so stressed out or whatever. Or it might just be part of his character that he's drinking, you know, all the time. And uh, it seems to describe a very strange, I don't know if that was really, like, how it was in you know the 50s because this guy was like a, a lecturer he actually he, he did teach at a university but it seems like they're just there's like uh the t teachers are drinking all the time and like at every event there's like a bar and stuff mm -hmm. but i don't know interesting scene so anyways about the author um he was knighted so it's sir kingly amos kingsley oh. amos um, this is our second Amos. knighted author from Arthur C. Clarke. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't know much about him. And what I did find out about him, I wasn't really into. I mean, I think, I think his politics were a lot better when he wrote this book, but they changed over time as he became successful and stuff. And he kept some strange company, but maybe I'll do some sort of vetting in the future. Uh, I don't know <laughs> Anyways, he was, uh, he was born in 1922, South London served in the Royal Corps of Signals, or whatever, I'm not sure what that is, in World War II. Me neither. He began writing in the 40s. Well, he started a family. Uh, I think his son is also an author. Uh, he taught English at the University College of Swansea. Lucky Jim was his debut. It was very successful at the time. Uh, he worked in a lot of different genres. He was shortlisted for the Booker Prize three times. Oh, nice. And he ended up yeah, he ended up winning it in 1986 for his novel, The Old Devils. Okay. I think, he, I 
believe he died in 1995 or in the mid 90s. So anyways, back to the book. I mean, sometimes like this book is on a lot of lists of like funniest books ever whatever it's like and sometimes these old books labeled as comic classics can really be hit or miss. Mm-hmm. And I would say this one's no exception. I thought parts of it were really good. Um, but a lot of people might not like it because the main character is unlikable. There's some strange kind of morals and, you know, it's from the 50s. Um, so obviously a different time. But, I mean, I don't think that the main character really has to be a hero or even be, like, competent for a story to be good or at least, like, entertaining. Mm-hmm. And uh, the fact that he's a bit of a burnout or maybe someone who coasted his way to where he is makes this like an interesting and funny read because that you know that angle can be very relatable um yeah what do you think about that like if the main character is an asshole are you like i can't stand this or or, no i i think i think i try to stray away from that there's like a lot of people who feel that way about kesher and the rye um but no, I, I mean, if if that's a feeling that I'm having about the character, then I just, I kind of almost, like, I think you can trust the author that they definitely want that to be happening, kind of. Um, yeah. If you, you know, I mean, people could say, even though the narrator of Great Gatsby, Nick, is, like, likable he's also unreliable and i think you know like fitzgerald was definitely like developing that um so yeah yeah. it can be like biographical or whatever i think it's definitely on purpose usually when you encounter it unless i guess i would say that i wouldn't be into it if i felt like it wasn't um like on purpose you know uh if i felt like the author was like making a main character that I hated and they weren't uh, trying to do that. But most, I think nine times out of 10, they are very aware that that's happening. Yeah. <laughs> so if you, yeah, if you go and read like reviews, of this book, it's very divisive on, on what people think about it. Um, mm-hmm. I just wanted to point out like the climax is, is a very, you know, cringeworthy. It's really painful to read because it's, it's centered around public speaking. And, you know, the sudden horror of being just a little bit too drunk mixed with, like, a large audience. Mm, It's very, like, tense in that weird way. (laughs) Um, But it it was was very good because, you know, like, it wasn't a very plot-driven book, but it was cool that he was able to take this kind of sort of boring setting and then make it, like, an actual tense kind of moment at the end. But I just want to read a couple quick things to close this out. Okay. Just going to be random sentences and stuff i'm gonna paraphrase just so you kind of get a better understanding of like the humor and stuff and sarcasm and all that all right dixon looked around the common room which seemed to contain everybody he knew or had ever known apart from his parents he felt like going around and notifying each person person individually of his preference that they should leave (laughs) and then also (laughs) I let myself in for several hour, several hours boredom every day, Dixon. A couple more won't break my back. Why do you stand it, said Dixon. I want to influence people so they'll do what I think is important they should do. I can't get them to do that unless I let them bore me first, you understand. Then just as they're delighting in having got me punch drunk with talk, I come back at them and make them do what I've got lined up for them. I wish I could do that, Dixon said enviously. When I'm punch drunk with talk, which is what I am most of the time, that's when they come to me and make me do what they want me to do. Apprehension and drink combined to break through another bulkhead in his mind, and he went on eagerly. I'm the boredom detector. I'm a finely tuned instrument. If only I could get hold of a millionaire, I'd be worth a bag of money to him. He could send me on ahead into dinners and cocktail parties and nightclubs just for five minutes. And then by looking at me, he'd be able to read off the boredom coefficient of any gathering, like a canary down a mine. Same idea. Then he'd know whether it was worth going in himself or not. <clears throat> so yeah, Lucky Jim, 1954, Kingsley Amos, check it out. <laughs> Mark's official recommendation. Cool. So we uh, got this week. That was good. Um, okay, so my book this week, curiously, Chappelle carried me. Sorry, <laughs> Chappelle. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, Chappelle can't carry. I don't know if Chappelle has ever commented uh, on my book uh, or, well, I'm sure I could find something in his work that would, uh, would fit. But um, <laughs> so it's kind of curious how you started out your um, description of your book about sort of kind of struggling with the mundane or like if you have like a new job or like a new life kind of like sitting down and just saying, you know, what am I doing? And like, what is life and stuff like that? Um, My book this week is very similar. It's a book that I know that you've read. So I guess I'm, I'm claiming one (laughs) Um, and that we've talked about before. Um, my book this week is the uh, the first book in the Norwegian phenomenon known as Karl Ove Nosgaard um, and his biographical series of novels called My Struggle. Um, so you've read book you've read books one and two, right? Yes. Me too. So I've only read books one and two. I so far find book one to be much more superior than the second one. So for right now, book one is my favorite one, which is a good one to start out with. Maybe we'll talk about the other ones on the podcast at some time. A Um, lot of controversy around this one. A lot of controversy around this book. And and that's, that's kind of what I'll be what my shitty book report will be about a little bit, but also just about the content of the novel itself. Um, Right off the bat, the, you know, um, this, these books are originally published in Norwegian. A fun fact that I rediscovered when doing research for the podcast is um, because of the amount of books sold, like in Norway, basically he is, First and foremost, a, a phenomenon like in his own country of Norway. Uh, he's a Norwegian author, and there is a one out of nine chance that if you talk to a Norwegian person that they own one of his books. That's how many books of his have <laughs> sold in Norway. One out of nine every at uh, one out of every nine adults has uh, owns or has read Nosgard. So I know he just he just put out a book about uh, about the painter Munch. Oh, did he? Oh, yeah, that's really interesting because I think he talks about him a few times um, in throughout this series. Munch, Munch I don't know. Yeah, um, also a famous Norwegian, right? Um, uh, I think so. Yeah, fellow countryman. Yeah, so that's probably why he's writing about him. But so the the phenomenon of my struggle is first. I mean, it owes itself to a lot of different things. I think um, what's really interesting about it being such a huge phenomenon in Norway is that, um, Mark, have you ever heard anything about the, like, recent um, kind of explosion of Norwegian television that's, like, extremely simple? Not at all. Oh, okay. So, like, when, like, a few years ago, it actually was, like, a few years ago, probably when Nosgaard was also, like, exploding in popularity, but there is a subgenre of Norwegian television that people, that, like, film and TV people are kind of fascinated by, where, like, like, a few years ago, there was a really, like, an actually popular documentary in Norway that was about, um, like, how to, like, stack wood in your backyard, and it's like a like and there's like another one that became really popular that was like um you know like the cinematography is good but it's like just like the view from like the um like the bow of a boat for like 4 hours like kind of thing so it's like there's like this weird sort of trend out there in Norwegian television of like extremely kind of benign um imagery and subject matter but like people seem to so really enjoy it that makes me it. think that makes me think of like uh, uh, it's another fucking thing impossible to pronounce. Uh, I think it's Huga or whatever. You've seen that H Y G G E. It's like that comfort kind of thing where everything is kind of simple, simple and. No, I don't. Think I don't know. I, I think it's H-Y-G-G-E? a Danish thing. It's not Norwegian. Yeah. The quality of coziness and comfortable conviviality that engenders a feeling of contentment or well-being. It's got something to do with simplicity. Oh, I don't know. It just made me think of that. It's, it's a da- a it's a Danish lifestyle. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. So like, Optic. so there's sort of like this Scandinavian kind of concept um, of like simple living. So 
it's it's interesting that like all of these things would sort of come together because also in a weird way i think that the phenomenon of nasgard also goes along i think it's almost like weirdly perfect timing of like what people often call the millennial generation they call it like the me generation you know like selfies and like self-introspection and stuff like that um so let me just get into kind of what the the series my struggle is first of all it also owes some of its controversy to the fact that in norwegian my struggle would be translated as min comp which is ridiculously close to the german translation my struggle is the name of hitler's autobiography so basically yeah. right off the bat in in a european region some you know guy with apparently balls of steel comes out with this book my struggle and people are like that's the name of hitler's autobiography so like right off the bat i mean i think it's like an attention grabbing thing but it's also like a you know it's just sort of like a weird quirk about it. Um, and what exactly My Struggle is, is a, well, the My Struggle by Carl Ove Narsgaard is, um, it's a series of six books that is ridiculously, um, you know, well received and well acclaimed by critics like all over the world. And basically what it is, is and uh, he has said this in interviews is basically like a flip when a switch went off in Nosgard's head. And he just, he was a novelist before this. He had published two novels, one called out of this world and another one called the time for everything, um, which had some kind of interesting, like, uh, you know, it, it, like he won the Norwegian critics prize for his first novel and the international Dublin literary world for his second novel. So basically he's already on the scene as like, kind of like, he's like a good writer, like coming up. And then somewhere along that journey, he, he said like a switch kind of flipped for him where he was like, okay, all I can do now, I don't want to write novels anymore. Cause everything seems like too trivial and like I'm making it up. So for my struggle, he basically just started writing his daily life as much as he possibly could. So like some some interviews he claims like he'll have writer's block, but during a day of writing, he'll do like 20 pages in a day. And he basically just said, I'm only going to write my life like as it like happened. So basically he's just saying this is going to be like autobiographical in nature, but he also went to extremes. Like he didn't change anybody's um, like names, like actual people's names, like his first wife, his second wife. Um, apparently like yeah, there's like all the, it's all the dirty laundry. Yeah. And apparently there's like a and big, a, like there's a controversy with the, his, the father, his father's side of the family, like doesn't talk to him anymore and stuff like that because, uh, it went like, I think it went kind of like crazier than he predicted it. So basically like, um, Nosgard is, I guess, kind of a unique name in Norway because, uh, a lot of the articles reference that his father's side of the family are the only Nosgards like in Norway. So it was like extremely easy to find who they were. <laughs> and, um, so, you know, it starts out at first by people getting obsessed with this book. That's that's the first thing. So basically, the writing kind of has to be good or it has to um, kind of appeal to a certain kind of uh, reader because people got so obsessed with it that they started like tracking down his family members and a lot of them like would refuse to give interviews and stuff like that. And that, yeah, you're right, Mark. Like that's what it's famous for, uh, airing his family's dirty laundry. The first book, which I think, you know, so far I've only read two. So, but the first one is by far my favorite is an examination of sort of the, how benign, um, like the presence of death is in our, in our lives, but also in his family. And a majority of the book concerns like his upbringing as a teenager with his brother in Norway, but then also a big chunk of it are him and his brother uh, cleaning out his father's house after his dad dies, like inside the house. Yeah, um, that uh, that part has stuck with me ever since. I remember that. Uh, it's incredibly vivid and, and yeah. Yeah, so that's basically it's what brutal. Nosgard is known for is like, taking a, a kind of like normal situation of him like reading or like writing or taking care of his kids. And for some reason it's like pretty absorbing. Um, it's not a spoiler by the way to say that like his father dies. Cause it's not like some 
you know, that's not some huge reveal. It's more revealing kind of when he starts talking about, um, you know, him and his brother Yingwei um, cleaning up his dad's house is like incredibly powerful writing. Um, I won't get too much into that, but I will kind of talk about some of the like basically like i said i found this this series of books actually by way of another novelist i've talked about on the um podcast zadie smith is like a massive fan of the my struggle books i think there's a quote from her saying that she awaits every english translation like crack <laughs> i think is the uh is the mm-hmm. direct quote from her i think that he's another person where some people are like it's just like the Norwegian phenomenon. I think some people are sort of like too into it. There's sort of, there's an interesting, any uh, fandom, any fandom is bad. Yeah. So 2019. (laughs) So he has a huge fandom, um, going back from when this was originally published in, uh, I think it's like from 2009 to 2011 was when he was writing. So he only wrote the books for a short period of years, but then they've been getting translated into, I think it says, over 35 languages since. And um, there's an interesting sort of like, there's a Vice documentary uh, um, where they interview him at length on YouTube, which I can link as well. Um, I'm not the hugest Vice fan. They're kind of bro-y, but um, they they meet up with him for, for an extended interview. And it's interesting, like he talks about, like eventually the, apparently in later books of the novel it starts to kind of fold in on himself like his fame he considers to and he's quoted it as saying that he thinks he's made sort of like a faustian bargain that he's achieved his massive success by sacrificing his relationships with friends and family um and in that vice documentary which it was on the eve of the publishing of his fourth book it seems pretty true like he says in it like in the beginning of the interview that at the height of its ridiculousness there was like a full page in the newspaper when he cut his hair in norway (laughs) so it's like he has to deal with this like weird obsession where people like he writes very beautifully but like people are like totally obsessed with him um Our friend James Wood, who coined that term hysterical realism, um, did a uh, did a review for The New Yorker um, where he praises the book, not like total praise, but he uh, he wrote an article for The New Yorker on the first book called Total Recall, um, which I think is a good sort of reference to um, Nosgaard and uh, the way that he writes um, I'm just going to read a small paragraph. These are This is two paragraphs that actually James Wood um, brought forth in his review of, of the first book, but I think they're pretty, like, they're exemplary of, of the way that he writes and also just, you know, how absorbing he can be. Uh, it's really hard to sort of, like, would you say, Mark, that it's, like, kind of hard to describe to someone else, like, why Nosgaard is good? Because it's like... Uh, okay. I'll I'll, t- I'll take a shot at it. Yeah, like why so would you say think, he's good? So I've only read I've read two of the six or whatever. Mm-hmm. But the way I'd put it, it's that um, it's his diary or whatever. But he's he's describing every single argument that he's had in his life, no matter how big or small. And you know, it could be like a fight with his dad about like literally like spilled milk or something like that. And um, I don't know, it, it's it's an extreme kind of perspective of, I mean, I, I guess I would have to say it's like, uh, it's incredibly like narcissistic or, or whatever. And it's like invasion of privacy kind of, but it's also, it's more about just the way it's written. The way it's written is so gripping and engaging and it's like, uh, it's these sort of things that normally wouldn't be written about. Maybe it's like a small, mm-hmm. small argument or a small kind of feeling or a small thing that happens in your life that you can relate to. Um, but he expands on it and, and his, his voice is very unique. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, another thing, like another thing, an article that I found um, in the New Republic by a guy named Evan Hughes from 2014 had a good kind of description of this phenomenon. So basically, um, you know, apparently in 2009, um, uh, Nosgaard's friend Torre, which is also throughout the novel, sat down in um, 
the House of Literature in Oslo and talked about the books and and what it took to write them for two hours. And then there's this short paragraph uh, that I'll read from this article in the New Republic. It says, afterwards, almost no one wanted to go home. A huge group packed into the building's restaurant. The space is chilly and overlit with the feel of a museum cafe. But people stayed for two or five or six beers, talking about how much they identified with Nosgaard and telling intimate stories from their own past. Catherine Sandnees, the 42-year-old editor of the prestigious Oslo journal Sam Tinden, thought to herself, what is happening? <laughs> so, I mean, and there's also like that, like, I think a lot of people have the feeling, like you said, uh, my struggle is like reading someone's diary who writes really well. And then, but I think that there's also this phenomenon going on with his writing where it's like, wait a second, like when you're reading it, you're sort of like, is this my diary? Like, how can people be so similar? Even though he's like, so like kind of brought up in a different place and a different time and stuff like that. Um, Yeah, you'd read it and you'd be like, oh, like, oh, man, he's had all these like horrible experiences. And then you have to think it over. You're like, oh, well, no, I could like elaborate. I think anyone could elaborate if if they chose to. And if they had the, you know, the guide and the voice, they could, you know create this kind of thing right it's like it's that old thing like everyone has a novel in them and it's like he has it in kind of the most obvious way yeah just kind of writing um what's happening so a a lot of the times he gets compared to proust but for me the comparison is a little bit stretched i mean the way that he he basically he wrote like a novel that's long that's like seven volumes just like proust did and that it's very autobiographical but I don't think he's nearly as complex. It's like, it's almost like if you took the same like kind of structure and idea of Proust, but then like added in sort of like an element of Hemingway where it's like a lot simpler and a little bit more modern. Um, Like I would compare his writing uh, in that way. Uh, I'm going to read these two short paragraphs and then that'll basically be it. But I, I do highly recommend Nosgaard. He's someone that is also sort of like, I think that there's sort of an interesting you can develop like a resentment for him one as like you're like being a writer if you are one um he even says like some of it like in the second novel i remember there's parts where his friends are like frustrated by him because it's like he must have a lot of like literary friends and authors so it's like it's frustrating that like you know nosgard writing about going and like taking a shit like thousands of people will just read it um so he's kind yeah, of frustrated. You don't want to get in a fight with him. No. He'll write about it. <laughs> yeah, he'll put you in his book. I mean, that people are probably avoiding him at that at this point because of that. Yeah. Um, which like he like, you know, like he said himself, is sort of like a Faustian bargain. But here's the two paragraphs that uh James Wood decided to to take out of uh his novel. And um yeah, I'll, I'll just read it really quickly. For while I previ- while previously I saw times a stretch of terrain that had to be covered with the future as a distant prospect, hopefully a bright one and never boring at any rate, now it is interwoven with our life here and in a totally different way. Were I to portray this with a visual image, it would have to be that of a boat in a lock. Life is slowly and in- ineluctably raised by time seeping in from all sides. Apart from the details, everything is always the same, and with every passing day, the desire grows for the moment when life will reach the top, for the moment when the sluice gates open and life finally moves on. At the same time, I see that precisely this repetitiveness, this enclosedness, this unchangingness is necessary. It protects me. On the few occasions I have left it, all the old ills return. So he cherishes the stability and the repetitive banality of his existence, but he chafes at these things too, because the ambition to write something exceptional one day, an ambition that has kept me going for the whole of my adult life, is threatened by the busyness of this routine. Inside it is a question of getting through the morning, the three hours of diapers that have to be changed, clothes that have to be put on, breakfast that has to be served, faces that have to be washed, hair that has to be combed and pinned up, teeth that have to be brushed, squabbles that have to be nipped in the bud, snaps that have to be averted, rompers and boots that have to be wriggled into, before I, with the collapsible double stroller in one hand and nudging the two small girls forward with the other, step into the elevator, which as often as not resounds to the noise of shoving and shouting on its Scent, and into the hall where I ease them into the stroller, put on their hats and mittens, and emerge onto the street, already crowded with people heading for work, and deliver them to the nursery ten, min- ten minutes later, whereupon I have the next five hours for writing until the mandatory routines for the children resume. 
So for some reason, you're just reading about this like stay at home dad who writes, you know, emotional like novels about, you know, his brother and his father and stuff. But it often sinks. It has that uh, like literary quality that we keep kind of butting up against where it's like normal, 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 normal writing. And then all of a sudden, like incredibly deep kind of, you know, philosophical wanderings. Like I won't start. I won't read the whole first paragraph because it's like pretty long. But in the book, you know, the first book, a lot of it is like that. A lot of it is sort of just him trying to write or him writing or like talking about his wife and kids or like his past with his brother and stuff like that. I think there's like a famous thing that a lot of people review about the first book that there's 70 pages in this first novel that has to do with him securing beer on New Year's Eve with his brother. Yeah. So it's like when As you like say a teenager, yeah, when you say that to someone, you're like, hey, there's 70 pages in this book about how they're trying to get beer. It's like, that sounds really stupid. But at the same time, you know, that's what the movie Superbad is about, you know, so it's like, you know, hot, like, you know, one in the same. Um, but the, the, the book starts with, you know, more philosophical things like this is how the book starts. For the heart, life is simple. It beats for as long as it can. Then it stops. Sooner or later, one day, this pounding action will cease of its own accord, and the blood will begin to run towards the body's lowest point, where it will collect in a small pool. Visible from outside is a dark, soft patch on ever-whitening skin. As the temperature sinks, the limbs stiffen, and the intestines drain. These changes in the first few hours occur so slowly and take place with such inexorability that there is something almost ritualistic about them. As though life capitulates according to specific rules, a kind of gentleman's agreement to which the representatives of death also adhere, inasmuch as they always wait until life has retreated before they launch their invasion of the new landscape, by which point, however, the invasion is irrevocable. You know, so like he he kind of like, and that's something else that James Wood said in his review of sort of like the presence of death and of kind of the positivity of life and the negativity of death is ever present while he's just kind of benignly describing his entire life. And, um, yeah, it, it's interesting. And, and also on top of it, the phenomenon of how controversial it was in his family and stuff kind of bring it all together. It's like, yeah, this is stuff that really happened and it's kind of like present in all of our lives. So there's also a lot of cool themes. Like I can't remember, I can't, I couldn't find specifically in my copy cause I haven't read, my struggle for a while but i do remember that he has like a theme in here of seeing like faces in the clouds and faces in water and stuff like that and those were some of the most striking moments for me as well he has these like um weird kind of little tiny moments where he's like i saw a face in the in the like static of the tv screen it's and i think it has something to do with sort of his deepest philosophical moments um i'd like to keep a lookout for that as i read the rest of the books which i'm sure i will um eventually but i will say that the second one slowed me down on the series because i didn't find it as ridiculously engrossing as the first one but that could also be a symptom of you know my life like the second one is largely concerned with raising his two daughters and i don't have kids yet so it's sort of like maybe some parts of it are lost on me but the first one definitely was not so recommended yeah i'm uh i'm very curious how he got four more books out of out of his life like uh, i don't know if it just caught up with him where it was you know then he's then the sixth book he's talking about the first book or whatever i think that does eventually i think it's like somewhere i don't know exactly where but i think like in some of the later ones, like maybe the fourth or fifth one, it starts to be about how, like about the phenomenon. Like, so, and, and in that way, it's also sort of like a a very modern kind of like conundrum, like I said, like of the whole selfie generation. Like there's even a, there's even the line of books that's like the most reproduced one. And one that I have is just like photographs of him. Like it's very sort of like narcissistic and self-involved. Like I'm sure a lot of people are just like, Oh, that's just like that. He's also like pretty photogenic. Like he's like a decently like handsome dude. So it's just basically like pictures of him everywhere. Cool hair. Yeah. Yeah, And uh, (laughs) you know, so it's, it's an interesting kind of thing of introspection, but also being self-involved, but also it folds back in on itself once he starts being famous and stuff like that. So Yeah. Nosgard, check it out and if you ever and it does work i've met people from norway and and talked about Nosgard, and they if they haven't read him they usually at least know who he is so 
it's it's a it's a topic of conversation with anyone Norwegian at the very least. Cool. Awesome. So uh, thanks for listening, everybody. This has been Shitty Book Reports. You can find us every Sunday on Spotify, SoundCloud, Instagram, and Twitter at SBR the Podcast. Uh, we're also on Stitcher now, which is very exciting. You can also email us at sbrthepodcast at gmail.com. Give us comments, suggestions, corrections, and whatever you're feeling. See you next time. See ya.